Good afternoon, Professor Peter Lanham. How's it going? I'm very well, thank you. Now, you have picked an interesting topic for this afternoon. You're going to have to break it down for me, uh, step yes, by step. A little bit obscure, but very intriguing to me. So this is the China's policy to make friends and to create diplomatic strong ties called the Belt and Road Policy. Mm. Um, and so this has involved them following the roots of the old Silk Road through the Islamic countries of the Middle East. Okay. Firstly, and then also trying to build ties into the ports around the Asian-African boundaries. Okay, so, so it's, it's rather, it's somewhat specific in the regions that they are trying to establish relations with. Yes, although of course the the recent fury about China and the um, the Solomon's Solomon Islands is mm. part of the same policy. Okay, all right. So, I mean, exactly what is the belt has become a little bit vague, mm-hmm. um, especially as China. See, what it involves is China becoming a bit like the U.S. became to a lot of developing countries over the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. that it, it lends money to impoverished third world uh, nations, enabling them to develop new strategies and to afford new infrastructure. Yes. What, of course, happened in the case of Sri Lanka is that the infrastructure, when Sri Lanka couldn't meet the bills, China simply took over mm-hmm. the ownership of the, of the harbour. So, I mean, it comes with its ties. Yeah, okay. And it's intended to tie a whole series of nations in the Middle East, in Africa, and in South Asia, and Southeast Asia, into China's area of influence. Yes, so okay. So it's very, very like the American approach mm-hmm. um, to these issues. You know, America has used this for generations, using its its money, its aid policy, to create friends. Yes, but would you say, <laughs> c- comparatively, that the American approach was to move into countries and go, hey, this is how we do it in America, this is how you should do it here. But from what I understand, the Chinese are a bit more tolerant of what is happening in the country, and they're just like, here's this money, you do you, uh, will just be here to take over your port if you default on your debt? Well, I'm not sure, actually, that there is a great difference between the Chinese okay. and the American policies, yep. except the attitudes that, you know, there's history behind the American use of their money as a powerful foreign policy tool mm-hmm. to try to bring about change, and yet ending up with a situation where they desperately need allies, say, in Turkey, and so therefore the money goes to a, a state which is less democratic than supposedly they want to have. Mm-hmm. But the Americans do publish these you know, quite intense, direct examinations of human rights conditions mm-hmm. in the countries throughout okay. the world. And so um, the Americans do hold up a public inspection, mm-hmm. what they think of what's going on in the States. Okay. 
And the interesting issue is exactly what is China trying to achieve by this and what tools are they prepared to use? And it turns out that one of the tools is religious, Mm -hmm. which is quite surprising given that China is an atheist state which has, you know, little time for religion and is certainly making the practice of religion in of some types incredibly difficult in China at the moment. Yes. Is it just generally that religion and region could be a stabilizing force if it is a dominant religion and that's okay, the Chinese just accept whatever religion is practiced, they leave them to it? It could be even more, it is as pragmatic than that, probably even more pragmatic, and and that is that uh, they, they want to neutralize potential negative forces, I mm. think. I think that's how they see it that there's potential for, for example, in Islamic countries, a bit of hostile reaction um, towards, uh, because of the way China has treated its own Muslim population. Mm -hmm. Um, And, I mean, especially for the more Christianized states, um, China's treatment of Christianity hasn't exactly been, you know, generous either, um, pulling down the crosses and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So both with um, Islam and Christianity. They've tried to find a way to develop this kind of policy, and so it's been on a pretty minor level where they will you know, lend historic artefacts that might be of interest to the peoples um, of that religion, that they'll try to establish positive links. See, they've also got an issue for China that a lot of um, Muslim Chinese will look to go for overseas study in Islamic countries. Mm-hmm. And so what they've got to be careful of is, you see, when they go to Islamic countries, it's very likely they'll end up facing a lot of anti-Chinese propaganda. And China is extremely sensitive of its, you know, the minorities in its uh, society yes. being empowered from outside in a negative direction. Okay. So they've they're playing a kind of curious role of trying to woo the religion. Mm. And I think this has probably been most effective um, for Buddhist countries. Yes. And that's pretty obvious. Um, China has actually used Buddhism even in its recent tendency towards um, being rejecting foreign religions as much as they can. Um, they've used Buddhism quite a bit um, and been quite prepared for young people to adopt some of the Buddhist practices. Mm-hmm. Since Buddhism is a very eclectic religion and you can mould it in various different shapes, yes. and Chinese Buddhism is anyway incredibly different from most other Buddhisms. So they can create links and they can be friendly and they can send out um, Chinese Buddhist overseas trips and not face too many dire consequences. But Peter, just going back to the, the, the very start of the conversation when you talked about them, tr- you know, making that trek through uh, the the Arab states and probably yes. more slightly Muslim um, you know, faith-based states. How, yes. I mean, just broadly speaking, how is China perceived by those states? The governments of these countries. Mm. Um, you know, a bit like the Solomon Islands, they will play for all the support they can get. Mm-hmm. And so far as China's policy doesn't come with too many price tags, 
then it's in the interests of that country to to help themselves to as many goodies as they can get. Yes. And that's actually worked quite well for China so that, you know, countries like Indonesia and countries, uh, African countries, there's been a significant increase in Chinese influence in African countries because of its willingness to lend money. Mm-hmm. And most of those countries feel the need of a counterweight to the American influence, which is often so unimaginative, you know, in which presses its narrow point. I mean, you, you can see a lot of African countries have surprisingly been willing to keep the Russian link going as well, which just seems counterintuitive to us. But from their point of view, the, the Ukrainian war makes no difference. Yes. Um, so what they're doing is trying, I think, to ensure there's a cultural... They will see religion in cultural terms. They'll say... Um, Let's perceive that there are ways in which our country and your country can be great friends and we can share the cultural relics of our religious heritage as much as anything. Mm. Mm. Now, I mean, it's not very convincing, you might say. But if you send an emissary abroad from, for example, a notable Buddhist monastery, then that, that person will be received very well. And if you can find convenient Muslims who will express positive thoughts towards China, then send them abroad, and it will be very cunning mm. uh, to to make contact. And what it shows up is that China's r- remarkably eclectic and flexible in the way in which it approaches any tool that laid their foreign policy tradition. Mm. And 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 so, I mean, historically, religion and foreign policy have always been connected. You know, there are lots and lots of examples going back to Marco Polo where there were co- connections between you bring a religion and we have to work out the ways that we accommodate that religion and we try to make sure that culturally we don't end up at war with each other. So this is an attempt to keep it going, but it's riven with contradictions because you just have to let the... the the Muslims who are so disgruntled um, in the eastern side of China, or you have to let the Tibetan Buddhists at their very volatile situation come to the front. And it could it could just explode in the face of the Chinese. Yes. And this is why, for example, the, the Islamic and the Christian connections policies have all faded in recent years because... Unfortunately, the, the the Christians and the and the Muslims in China, they can't be relied upon by the Chinese. Now, but I don't. Peter, yes. Peter yep. just quickly, um, we've had a question come through. What about New Zealand? <clears throat> and that just got me thinking: Is there a religious side to China's approach to New Zealand, or do they just go, "Hey, it's pretty secular. We just talk shop with them." I think they feel very comfortable with our secular society. Mm. And there, no, I've seen no evidence that there is a religious side. I mean, what you could get is a cultural exchange where they lend historic artifacts that might be shown in a museum exhibition. And those are the sorts of possibilities that would be of interest um, to New Zealand museums to show some of the treasures. Indeed, we have had some of the treasures 
of you know, the excavations of ancient Chinese emperors. And it is an intriguing thing that communist China now has a huge enthusiasm for their own history, very uncommunist history, of course, a very imperial history. And so that's the cultural side of the building of the relationship with New Zealand. Mm. All right. Hey, Peter Lynham, thank you very much for this week's edition of, this, of That's the Spirit. Fascinating. And we'll, All right. we'll look forward to speaking with you next week. Excellent. Bye. Oh, oh, oh.